What is worship? Is it singing? Is it obeying? Thinking? Serving? This morning we're going to find out it's all of those things and more. In fact, worship is a way of life. If you open your Bible again and turn with me to Romans chapter 12. In the Church Bible, that's page 1139, and in the large print, 1761. Romans 12, and I'm going to read the first eight verses, if you follow along with me, please. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. This is God's word. And before we look at this passage, we need to think about why it's here. As we've been going through this letter, we've noticed it breaks down into various sections. Our passage this morning starts a new section of the letter. And it's important to ask, why did Paul put these verses here instead of somewhere else? Well, let's take a moment to remember what has come earlier in the letter to the Romans. This letter is about the gospel. And Paul started by showing we all need the gospel. We're all under the power of sin. So we're unable to get ourselves in the right with God. Then Paul explained what the gospel is. It's the good news that God has provided a way for us to be in the right with him. To be justified. Jesus died in our place. God's wrath was poured out on him, so it needn't be poured out on us. 
He was condemned for our sin so we could be forgiven and reconciled to God. And Paul said we receive this gift by putting our trust in Christ's work. And then we learned about the difference this makes. Through faith we are transferred into a whole new realm. Out of the realm where sin and death reign to the realm where grace and life reign. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're able to live for God. And Paul told us God is with us. Even in present sufferings, we are blessed. And we have an eternity of blessing ahead of us. We are headed for the glory of God. And in the meantime, nothing can separate us from his love. That was chapters 1 to 8 of Romans. Then in chapters 9 to 11, Paul showed us why we can be confident of all this. We can have unshakable confidence because our God has sovereign power. His plans and promises can't be ruined. Not by the efforts of his enemies and not by the waywardness of his people. We can trust God to do what he promised to do. We can trust that his wisdom and power are perfect. Romans 1 to 11 has taught us a lot. Those chapters have given us a lot of truth about ourselves and about God and God's work for his glory and our good. Now there were a few commands along the way in those chapters, but mainly we were presented with life-changing truth. And now chapter 12 begins a new section with a new emphasis. Chapters 12 to 15 call us to live out the truths of chapters 1 to 11. These chapters are about living the gospel. And Paul's introduction to this section comes in the first verse of chapter 12. He says, Therefore, I urge you in view of God's mercy. That's Paul's summary of chapters 1 to 11. They're about God's mercy. And now in view of that mercy, in response to it, here's how we're to live. And the way we're to live could be summed up in two words. Total worship. It's easy for us today to have a very narrow, limited view of worship. We talk about worship leaders. We talk about worship times. That implies there are set times for worship and that worship is basically singing. Or maybe we'd go further and say it's singing that comes from the heart. But in this passage, Paul is going to tell us, not that that's a wrong view of worship, but he's going to tell us it's a way, way too narrow view of worship. Where we talk about worship in terms of our hearts, 
Paul talks in terms of our bodies. Where we talk about singing, Paul talks about living. Where we think in terms of times of worship, Paul thinks about continual worship. Where we give worship a place in our lives, Paul says our lives are to be total worship. And verse 1 gives us an explanation of total worship. We are called to be living sacrifices. That's to be our response to God's mercy. Verse 1 reminds us our work of worship is not a way to earn God's mercy. It's what we do when we have received his mercy through faith in Christ. The NIV says offering our bodies as a living sacrifice is our true and proper worship. If you've got an older NIV, you'll notice it says your spiritual act of worship. And that shows us the phrase Paul uses is quite hard to translate. But the thrust of it is, this is what's involved in genuine worship. Real, authentic worship is more than just singing. Now I think most of us realize that. We'd say yes, it means giving our hearts to God. But Paul says, "Uh uh-uh bodies. That's not a word we often associate with worship. But Paul wants us to bring our idea of worship out of the clouds and into daily life. He's telling us worship is about our whole self, our entire person. Not just your emotions and feelings, but your hands and your feet. And eyes, your mouth and ears, our bellies, our minds, and every other part of us. It's about giving yourself to God and putting yourself to work for God. Paul says that's what genuine worship is. It's total worship. If we want an idea of what that looks like, John Stott paints a helpful picture for us. He says, Our feet will walk in his paths. Our lips will speak the truth and spread the gospel. Our tongues will bring healing. Our hands will lift up those who have fallen and perform many mundane tasks as well, like cooking and cleaning. Typing and mending. Our arms will embrace the lonely and the unloved. Our ears will listen to the cries of the distressed. And our eyes will look humbly and patiently towards God. That's what it looks like to be a living sacrifice. Now the word sacrifice probably makes us think of the Old Testament. And we might wonder, does that really fit with the New Testament? Aren't we supposed to be done with sacrifices today? 
Didn't Jesus offer himself as a once-for-all sacrifice? Doesn't the Bible say that somewhere? Well, yes, it's true that Old Testament sacrifices were mostly sacrifices for sin. Not all of them, but most of them were offered up seeking God's mercy. The sinner stood there knowing that she or he deserved to die. But they followed the provision God had made. They slaughtered a bull or a lamb and they asked God to accept that death in their place. The lamb's blood instead of theirs. And Jesus did bring an end to that kind of sacrifice. He was the true atoning sacrifice. The animal sacrifices were just a picture of what Jesus really did. When we're trusting in his sacrifice, God's wrath really is turned away from us forever. That's why we have no altar here. The days of sacrifices for sin are over. And later this morning we will celebrate that fact. But, that does not mean all sacrifices are a thing of the past. Today, we don't offer sacrifices to earn God's mercy. We offer sacrifices of worship to the God who has shown us mercy. Our sacrifices proclaim his worthiness, his greatness. They proclaim our thanks to him. And our sacrifice of worship is to be our whole self. For the whole week, for the rest of our lives. A moment ago, we heard John Stott's positive description of that. But there's a negative side to it as well. We're not only to give our bodies to doing good, we're also to refuse to do wrong with our bodies. We all realize that hands and tongues can do harm as well as good. Minds can dream up evil, selfish plans as well as holy ones. They can dwell on unclean things as well as honorable things. Our sexual organs can bring God-glorifying unity in the right context, in marriage, and they can bring heartache and emptiness in plenty of other contexts. Our bodies can be abused in other ways too, through gluttony and drunkenness and drugs. The point is, turning away from sin with our bodies goes hand in hand with doing good with our bodies. Being a living sacrifice involves doing both, both doing things and it involves turning away from doing other things. And Paul tells us the key to being living sacrifices, the key to true worship, is renewed minds. Look at verse 2. 
Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. This verse tells us how we can offer our bodies as living sacrifices. How we get that process going. Paul gives us a negative and a positive. Negatively, we are not to conform to the pattern of this world. Literally, this age. And Paul's talking about this God-dishonoring environment that we all live in all the time. This age, or this world that's in rebellion against God. And this world that we live in does not leave us alone. It's constantly trying to squeeze us into its mold. You wouldn't be able to tell this now, today, but between the ages of 7 and 10, I had a perfect little Suffolk accent. When I was 7, we moved from Northern Ireland over to Ipswich. I arrived at school there, age seven, with my wonderful Ulster accent. It wasn't as tempered as it is today. And my life was miserable for a couple of months. Everything I said sent the whole class into hysterics. And it wasn't because I was telling jokes. I was the joke. It was awful. Until I conformed to the pattern. I mastered the local twang. When I arrived at the school gates in the morning, I turned into a little tractor boy, just like all the others. In case you don't know what that means, I I think that's an affectionate slang term for people from Suffolk. And when I got home in the afternoon... I started talking properly again. Now, I don't know if that was something I consciously decided to do. I just felt the pressure to conform and I let it happen. That's what Paul is telling us not to do. But don't we all feel that pressure? Not to conform our accents, but to conform to the patterns of living and thinking that are all around us. Squeezing us. Pressuring us to chase after financial security. To accumulate the latest and greatest material things. To allow discontentment to become a way of life for us. To always be reaching for more. Don't we feel the pull to assert our rights? To shove others aside and say whatever we need to say to get ahead. Never mind if it's true or not. Never mind if it's fair or not. And in other situations, isn't there a temptation to stay quiet? To protect our own interests instead of speaking up for what's right. 
even if you and I are not aware of it, this world is trying to squeeze us into its mold. It is not content to leave us alone. The negative side of our calling is to resist that pressure. So what's the positive side? The positive side is to let God remold our minds. We're to pursue lives that are conformed to his will. What Paul is telling us is we can't live neutrally. We're either conforming in one direction or the other. To this world's pattern or to God's. Now we might think we are breaking the mold with our lives. But it's not true. No one ever breaks the mold. We submit to one mold or the other. And we submit to God's mold as our minds are renewed. That is a lifelong process. You and I do not need encouragement to be selfish or greedy or to be idol worshippers. When we're born, those things are natural for us. They're like preloaded software. But when we come to Christ, we have a new owner. And he has all the new software we need. All that we need to live and think according to God's will. But we have to seek that reprogramming. There are no shortcuts. We have to be active in conforming our minds to God's will so that we will live according to his will, his good, pleasing and perfect will. How do we do that? Well, we will only be reprogrammed as we pay serious attention to God's word. Here's what Paul tells Timothy. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It takes no real effort on our part to conform to the pattern of this world, to think and see things this world's way. On the other hand, it takes lifelong effort and the Holy Spirit's power to renew our minds by God's word. Let's commit ourselves to that. It's the key to true worship. Paul has told us what true worship is. It's being a living sacrifice. He's given us the key to true worship. Renewed minds. And now in verses 3 to 8, he gives us an example of renewed minds in action. Knowing our place and playing our part. Verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment 
in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. A mind conformed to the pattern of this world does not worry that it might be thinking too highly of itself. This world tells me every day that I'm worth it. It tells me I deserve more. It tells me I should demand more. It never ever tells me, be careful, you don't think too much of yourself. Now don't misunderstand. This is not a call to see ourselves as worthless. These verses are about to tell us all of us have something to contribute. All of us. But you and I will only contribute in a God-honoring way if we resist this world's message that we are number one. And that we ought to be treated as number one by everybody else. Paul says we are to think of ourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of us. What does that mean? Does it mean we've all been given different amounts of faith? I don't think so. Paul's point here is that none of us are to look down on others. And to back that up, he says that we all share the same faith. And God has given it to us. We're all saved by God's grace. How could any of us ever look down on anyone else? All of us stand on level ground at the foot of Christ's cross. And having been saved by God's grace, we all have different parts to play in God's kingdom. Paul compares the church of Jesus Christ to a body. Every part of the body needs the other parts. And every part has a job to do. So there's no room for being proud and there's no room for being a passenger. Look how Paul puts it in verse 4. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. And then Paul finishes with a sample list of gifts. There are other gifts like this in the New Testament. None of them are meant to be exhaustive lists. They're representative samples. But notice in this list, the balanced set of gifts Paul mentions. Some of these gifts involve standing in front of others. Some of them involve work behind the scenes. Some of them involve a particular skill. Some of them a particular attitude. And some of them involve using resources that God has blessed us with. In verse 6, If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. 
If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. You'll notice some of these are things we're all called to do. For example, serving and giving and showing mercy. But the point here seems to be some of us have been given the energy or the temperament or the resources to excel in one of these particular areas. And whatever our gift is, the more you and I renew our minds by God's word, the more we will use our gift eagerly and with the right attitude. We will know our place. We're just a part of the body. And we will play our part. Because we have a responsibility in the body. That's part of what it means to be a living sacrifice. It's part of total worship. Romans 12 began with a reminder of what God has done for us. All that we are to do for him is a response to his mercy. In just a moment we're going to celebrate his mercy as we share the Lord's Supper together. But first we're going to remember that we live lives of worship because God's Son gave his life for us. 